You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. Our guest for this episode is Emmy-nominated producer, writer, and commentator, Baratunde Thurston. He's the host and executive producer of America Outdoors on PBS. How does our relationship with the outdoors define us as individuals and as a nation? And he's also a New York Times bestselling author. His comedic memoir, How to Be Black, introduced him to the world back in 2012, and his TED Talk has been called one of the best of all time. I survived something that should not require survival. He also has a podcast called How to Citizen, which was named one of Apple's top podcasts of 2020. And he's a founding partner and writer at the new media startup, Puck. Baratunde, thank you so much for joining us here at The Blackest Question. Chrissy, it's so good to be here in between me taking all the jobs. What's <laughs> up? Listen, you know I love all the jobs. I should have put in the bio, also a friend of Chrissy Greer for a good 25 years. Oh, um, That school. goes in the bio as well. I'm so happy to have you here. We're going to jump right in and then uh, we'll, we'll talk about all the things, Great. past and present. Okay, you ready for question number one? I am Black's ready. Question. Let's go. Question number one. The Meridian Hill Park in Washington, D.C. is 12 acres and located in the Columbia Heights neighborhood and has an informal name that many people use to describe it. What is this unofficial name? Malcolm X Park. That is correct. The area where Meridian Hill Park is located has an extensive history because of its location overlooking the city. During the Civil War, it was used as an army encampment and at one time was the home of former President John Quincy Adams. The area was eventually bought by a wealthy couple who decided to turn the 12 acres into a park. And during a political rally in 1969, an activist proposed officially renaming the park to Malcolm X Park, but it was never approved by the city. So after some crime issues and some vandalism in the 90s, the park was designated a National Historic Landmark and has gotten a revamp. And on Sunday afternoons, people gather to have drum circles and it's become a major attraction. So we know that you spent some of your childhood in Columbia Heights. Right in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this was in my life and understanding always and only Malcolm X Park. I literally didn't know people called it or that it ever had the name Meridian Hill Park until about a year ago. I was looking it up and I was doing some research in my old neighborhood for a creative project. And I was like, what the hell is Meridian Hill? What kind of gentrifying nonsense? is going on and then it's like oh facts whatever but uh yeah it was it was a special time uh to be in chocolate city in the district of columbia (laughs) during the the fall of our mayor our the great marion barry it was an awesome time to grow up uh under the influence of of chuck brown and and boom and go-go music (laughs) and it was a violent time Mm -hmm. crack cocaine uh gangs uh which affected my family my friends uh my whole sense of reality um but i also love dc I love mm-hmm. Jackson City. I love the size of it. I love the blackness. I mean, you talk about the blackest questions. D.C. is the blackest city, and it's the capital. And and the thing I like the most 
um, is that you have this city, which should be a state, by the way. Right. That We're pro-statehood on this podcast. Literally, you know, powers the federal government. Uh-huh. And you got all, you know, a lot of people like to talk trash about the federal government, especially Republicans, but people in general. And it's just, it's just a bunch of black people keeping together uh-huh. like we've been doing from the beginning. The Government Accountability Office, the Social Security Administration, like everything, the Postal Service. Yeah. All the, all the stuff people rely on day to day. Like if it broke down, we'd have revolution in the streets like we were French people. That's black folk. Right. And that's, that's D.C. black people keeping it moving. Uh, so I well, just deep love for my people uh, of Washington, D.C. from the district. Yes. Well, I got to say, you know, here are the blackest questions. I love Baltimore. Now, I will say I love Mary Berry. He's one of my uh-huh. all-time favorite mayors uh-huh. for a host of reasons. You know, sort of what he did for black people while especially during his first term as mayor and in some of his second. Um, I do prefer Baltimore House Club music a little bit more than the DC Go-Go. That's okay. That's cool. You're but allowed to make mistakes. I, we're, we're, like it's okay. And if, what, the beauty of it is we have so many beautiful black cities. But transitioning to season two of your show on PBS, yeah. you know, did you grow up in DC? You know, did you enjoy nature in DC? Did you go and check out the cherry blossoms? Did you spend time in various parks? Or, you know, have you always been an outdoors man? Or is this something that you've grown into since you've left the district? It actually is the opposite. It's something I grew out of after I left the district. And the PBS show has helped bring me back to my childhood. So I grew up, for people who really want to get a map and drop some pins, I grew up at 16th and Newton Street. So really Mount Pleasant, Columbia Heights, like the border. And I identified more with Mount Pleasant since that's where my school was. And most of my friends were just across 16th. That's where the line is. We had Rock Creek Park, so mm. constantly biking and playing uh, foolishly, you know, dangerously in that park as part of childhood. We had the paddle boats downtown, and my mom and my sister and I would go down and get on those little paddle boats around it. the reservoirs and all the monuments. We'd go down to Haynes Point, where the cherry blossoms were in this beautiful statue called the Awakening, and a golf course. First time I ever saw golf in my life was this public golf course on right. Haynes Point in D.C., and I was a Boy Scout in D.C., further up 16th Street, and went camping. My mom was in the Sierra Club. We hiked the CNO Canal. D.C., 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 not to mention Virginia Beach, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and oh, all the good. access you have north and south in the I-95 corridor, taking you up to Maine all the way down to Florida. My whole outdoor identity started because of where I was born and because my mother was a really adventurous woman uh, who made me get out of the house. Well, I mean, you know... I always think of D.C. and Baltimore also as very southern cities as uh, well, Yeah, you know, yeah. because there is so much beautiful nature. I mean, I will say this as a political scientist and, you know, some black folks are like, oh, you know, they bristle when I say this. I think this is one of the most beautiful countries, you know, when you drive around and, and that's yeah. the beauty of your show. So tell us a little bit more about America Outdoors, because we have so many different, you know, we've got deserts and mountains and rivers and lakes and streams and, you know, oceans, plural. Yeah. So like. Tell us a little bit more about what to expect from season two of America Outdoors on PBS. So so the premise of the show is that we're exploring all kinds of Americans and their deep relationships with outdoors. And then we're doing it in a way that is farther reaching than most outdoor presentations have done. So we have extreme athletes. We've got classic hikers and outdoors people. We also have people who work in the outdoors. We've got birders like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Camp, we got wildland firefighters, we got crabbers and ranchers, 
And uh, and I've gotten to see a lot of the country freshly because uh-huh. of that show. And it is beautiful, Chrissy. America is. is beautiful. It's not just a song. You know? No. And, and, and we I tell all my diversity. students to drive cross country at some point in time. Yes. You know, the northern route and the southern route to also see how we're supposed to all be connected, yep. not just racially and ethnically, but geographically, topographically. You know, uh-huh. we've got flatlands people are supposed to be with the mountain people, and the desert people are supposed to be with all these different well, climates. And when I you mean, start, when you start spending time with the nature part of America, it makes more sense why the people are the way they are. Like we're a product of our environments, <laughs> and you know, New England is jammed up and it's cold, and that's the people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> And you could go, there's river people and there's mountain people and there's plains people and there's humid, sticky, sweaty people like America is. And I, and really specifically, the United States of America you know, <laughs> is a product of its environment. Uh, and we have a lot of indigenous voices <laughs> in the show to really roll the clock back right. on, you know, whose land this really is. Season two, we're doing more of what we did in season one in new places. Uh, we in have some places. winter activities. They got your boy out in the snow and the cold. Uh, we have, I was in Florida, uh, Chrissy, I was in Florida, North Florida, which mm-hmm. is very Southern. That's uh, where my grandparents are from. Yeah. So I was in Okefenokee Swamp mm-hmm. in Southeast Georgia, and we followed the Suwannee River all the way to the Gulf of Mexico mm. and picked up stories and followed people along the way. Uh, Black Motorcycle Club, Puerto Rican Jet Ski Clubs, like scientists who are working to preserve manatees and alligator snapping turtles and i held a snake you know there's a, there's more wildlife in this season right and i hope we're better just because we know more of what we're doing uh, my enthusiasm is uh untamed uh, in season uh, two well we're going to take a quick commercial break i'm with baratunde thurston we're talking about season two of his pbs show America Outdoors. Before we go, Baratunde, you know, my third grade uh, science project was Don't Be a Manatee Buster. It's about saving the manatees in Florida since my parents, my grandparents are from northern Florida and a little town called Yuli is where they were from. Uh, and my dad was raised in Miami, so I have strong, strong yes, southern Floridian roots. that episode's for you. Oh, it's just for me. We're going to take a quick break and join us back in The Blackest Questions in just a moment. Okay, we're back. I'm here with my dear friend, Baratunde Thurston. Uh, he is the host of season two of America Outdoors on PBS. Be sure to check it out. Question number two. Harvard University is making history this year when it will name its first black president in the school's nearly 400-year history. This woman, there's a hint, will only be the second woman to hold the position, and she begins her role this summer. Who is she? Oh, she, she's a black woman who's going to be president of Harvard University. That's who she is. She's a leader and a pioneer. That's she, right. She is uh, unbent and unbowed. She she has a name, but why limit her? You right. know, why limit right. her to, to the syllables of a name bestowed upon her, maybe by people who don't even practice a religion or ancestors mm-hmm. practice? You know, like, I don't want to get specific here, Chrissy. I want to okay. honor the idea of the woman. Not, I'm not about labels. You know what I mean? That's right. And what's well, here are Blackest but... Questions. We got to have a quick label for those people who are playing along at home. And so this is a shout out to our Haitian listeners. This is Claudine Gay, political scientist, I might There you add. go. So Claudine Gay has a long history with Harvard. She received her PhD from the institution in 1998, and she served as the dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences since 2018. She also taught courses at the university focusing on racial and ethnic politics in the U.S., Black politics in the post-civil rights era, and with her appointment, five and soon to be six 
of the eight Ivy League schools will be held by will be led by women. That's Harvard, Dartmouth, Penn, Cornell, Brown, and Columbia will also have a female president starting this summer. So I mean, you know, women are taking over the Ivies in more Yo. ways than one. And so I know, you know, we met when you were at Harvard. I was hanging out with my sister and basically not going to high school because I was too busy hanging out in Cambridge. But, yeah. you know, you, you graduated from Harvard with a degree in philosophy. Let's reflect back on your time in Cambridge, being black in Boston, you know, as you travel the world, you know, for America Outdoors on PBS and your new show. What what sort of reminds you of sort of your days in New England? Have you gone and taken the show up there? And if so... What's changed and what's stayed the same? Oh my goodness! So first of all, I'm I'm embarrassed that I, I forgot uh, Claudine Gay's name. I was so she was blowing up the group chats of various <laughs> uh, communities I'm a part of in terms of the Harvard Black Alumni Networks. So very excited for her, wishing her luck, uh, stewarding this mammoth, uh, challenged institution through right. the troubled waters ahead. It sounds like everything she studied and taught is illegal in Florida as well. Right. So I just. Uh, I'm wishing her the best with the relationships with the universities uh, down south or up north, as the case may be. My time at Harvard, oh my goodness, um, it was the best of times. It yeah. was the worst of times. Boston is a cold and bitter place with cold <laughs> and bitter people. I lived there for 12 years. I call it my 12 years a slave. I forgot you could leave. And uh, and when I realized that, I did. A lot of love, a lot of love mixed up in my story there. It's where I became so much of who I am. I met <laughs> some of the best people, uh, which happens to a lot of people who go to college. Um, I don't know that Harvard gets credit for that, uh, but they said yes to a lot of us, and we said yes to the institution, just as important. Uh, I think it's the people who make that place, and it's just <laughs> not a powerful institution on its own. So we gave a lot of our uh, beauty and energy and, and brilliance to the institution, which allows it to continue, uh, and I want people to to know that, especially about that they're waiting for those college applications to come back to you right mm -hmm. about now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a big deal for you to accept them uh, as well as for them to accept you. I think about the, you know, the friendships that I made, not just uh, at Tufts where I went to school down the street, but, yeah. you know, the three years before I went to college, hanging out with my sister um, and spending so much time with all these brilliant, beautiful black people yeah. who were just smart, fun, interesting, interested in the world, you know, so many of you have gone on to do. We've had Diallo Riddle on the show, who's a friend of the Grio in many ways. You know, he's gone on to do so many creative endeavors. You know, obviously, we've got people in politics and medicine and law and, you know, tech, you name it. Um, and I'm just, I'm so happy to have known all of you from when we were all young little teens, you know, just <laughs> trying to figure it out. But having this, this city as a backdrop yeah. um, that wasn't always welcoming, but, you know, kind of made us a, a more tight-knit group, uh, sometimes because it wasn't so welcoming. We sort of relied on each other as family and friends. We figure it out. We, we <laughs> make a way out of no way. Um, we feel, I think, a lot of the... Being at a place like Harvard, anything that has, like, rarefied energy, <laughs> there's a, a sense of burden and responsibility. You know, we're not just individuals there. We're, many of us are carrying our families. Some of us are, like, the first. You know, in our families, there's a lot of immigration stories. There's a lot of... <laughs> financial challenge is also legacy, right? It's not just like broke black people uh, or new to America. There's some folks who've been there for some <laughs> generations and have uh, a lot of stories to tell and, and a lot to still contribute. But the, you know, the institution ultimately isn't like fully constructed for us. I don't think I'm walking out on a limb when I say that. And, and so navigating those waters, when I arrived, uh, a professor named Harvey Mansfield was uh, 
all the buzz, basically saying we don't belong there. Mm-hmm. If we're not qualified, it's just affirmative action. The bell curve had come out, uh, this pseudoscientific explanation, quote unquote, for why black people just aren't as smart as white people. Mm-hmm. That came from a Harvard credentialed professor. Mm-hmm. Tom Cotton also came out of Harvard, right? So there's, um, the humility is, is required when assessing anything great and, and being honest about the whole story is part of how you can celebrate a place. And that's whether it's Harvard and it's up and down legacy or the United States of America mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's up and down legacy. So I'm, I'm a proud alum. I have served, I have paid my debts, except for my phone bill. I somehow graduated without paying my Harvard phone bill. And I'm going to take that as a teeny tiny down posit. Uh, I'm going to take that as a teeny tiny down payment on reparations. That's right. Hashtag reparations. You know, yeah. I always tell people before we go to commercial break, it's like, I went to an HWCU. You know, I went to a university that was uh, founded and formed for the production of knowledge for white people, you know, and somehow I went to, you know, like people use PWI and I'm like predominantly white institutions. I was like, no, no, no. Special tax bracket for HWCUs? Yeah, I was like, Howard's an HBCU. I went to an HWCU. Yeah. Similar philosophy, just totally different racial groups. Yeah, definitely a racialized, you know, origin story in terms of who it was designed to serve and educate. Yeah. And sometimes we're reminded of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm here with my friend, Baratunde Thurston. We're talking about all the things, but especially his new season of his show on PBS, America Outdoors. We'll be right back. Okay, Baratunde, we are back playing the Blackest Questions. Are you ready for question number three? I am ready. Okay. This comedian and actor became the first Black man to host a late-night talk show in 1989. It ran for five seasons. What show was this? Wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to think out loud. Don't give me any, like, visual feedback. When you say a comedian and actor in Late Night Show, it went to Robert Townsend, as I thought he had the first TV show, but I don't know if it was a late night show. I feel like Chris Rock show came later. Arsenio Hall. There we go. Arsenio Hall. (laughs) Just a year after his iconic role in Coming to America, my favorite movie, by the way. Arsenio debuted his late-night talk show, rivaling hosts like Johnny Carson and David Letterman. The show quickly became a hit with younger viewers who were not regular watchers of late-night TV, and Arsenio featured talent who weren't typical guests on rival networks. People like Tupac Shakur, Magic Johnson, Paul Abdul, Queen Latifah, my mm, favorite. U-N-I-T-Y. U-N-I-T-Y. That's the unity. Listen, that album still slaps, okay? Um, and in 1992, the show had one of its most memorable moments when the presidential candidate... Then Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, appeared on the show and played the saxophone. So I don't know about you, but I remember sort of staying up to watch Arsenio Hall, you know, or sometimes putting it in the VCR and then watching it at a later time. But definitely seeing way more black folks on television that we weren't accustomed to seeing on, say, the Johnny Carsons and the David Letterman's and then ultimately the Jay Leno's. It was a family event. It was was, was. a special. We, I think from a historical perspective, folks should be, myself included, really excited about the volume and range of blackness that is available in the form of moving images today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it has not always been this way. There's a lot more distance to cover, uh, but we got, you mentioned Diallo, right? Had two shows on television at the right. same damn time. Come right. on, man. That's Shout ridiculous. Out to Diallo Riddle and Bashir Saludi. Uh, the creators of Southside, one of my favorite shows, and also Sherman Showcase. Check and out. And they're both those. ridiculous shows. Like yeah, they, brilliant. There's a freedom to yeah. be black in so many different ways, from uh-huh. insecure black to Atlanta black 
uh, to all the stand-up comedy blacknesses that are out there, mm-hmm. nerdy and ratchet and everything in between. So, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was like a special event. It was like a family reunion. It was breaking news. Black person will be on TV. Mm-hmm. Not do a step in and fetch it. Oh, right. we got we to support. We and having support. thoughtful conversations when Arsenio would have them on the couch and really yeah. get into it. You know, I distinctly remember uh, Arsenio talking to Magic Johnson uh, at one point in time about, you know, his son coming out is, is gay and like what that meant for, for yeah. him. You know, and I think these are just important conversations that we've had. Now, who's your favorite comedian? Oh, my goodness. Don't make me do this. Okay. Don't or, you know what else you'd say? Um, who are some of your favorite comedians <laughs> or who do you enjoy watching? Uh, you I know, think. Because there's so many talented yeah. folks out there. And shout out to Roy Wood Jr., who's a friend of the the Griot and has been on The Blackest Questions and, and played Well, now played that with you us, said that, I got to say, Roy Wood Jr. is one of my favorite comedians. <laughs> uh, actually, Roy is a great person. I'm so lucky I got to work with him uh, for a brief time at The Daily Show when we overlapped. The um, Richard Pryor mm-hmm. is a classic uh, who doesn't go out of style for me. Okay. And is is worth watching and rewatching. I um uh, I like the weirdness and innovation. Are we talking about black comics or just comics in general? We can talk about comics. Listen, Joan yeah. Rivers. I grew up. She was one of my all time favorites. Like yeah, I just you know, what? It's kind of like the other end of a spectrum when I say Bo Burnham, and that he put out this special during the pandemic and has just like innovated the form weirdly okay. and differently. And I just. I love when people remix and match and kind of push the bounds of what's allowed. And I feel like uh, Bo has done that. Plus, if you didn't know, like Bo Burnham, that sounds like it could be like a black ass name. But it's not. He's very not black. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, actually, who else? I From the younger era, Hassan Minaj specials have really blown me away. And I think he's also pushed some of the bounds and his multimedia inclusion. I'm a sucker for a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and uh, and what he did with Homecoming King uh, still stands out to me as like a real high point in solo stand-up on-stage delivery. But he brought kind of a cast with him in the form of those uh, visuals. A little jealous, low-key jealous, but also really excited. I've seen more and more comedians using different, me- you know, different mediums and, and yeah. PowerPoint and different ways to sort of articulate their jokes. And, you know, I, I think the role of the comedian is so important. I've said this to Diallo several times, you know, as someone who studied, uh, I was a classics minor in college, but, you know, the the quintessential occupations in society that have existed since the time of, you know, the Greeks and the Romans, like if you can only have four, you've got doctor, lawyer, teacher, and comedian, right? <laughs> I mean, the role of the comedian is essential uh, yeah. in, in society. Okay, when so I was in, a kid in the in the Mount Pleasant Columbia Heights neighborhood, we would listen to Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. Uh, we had a lot of you know LPs and then cassettes. So we the cassettes we'd take on these road trips going camping, and and play just over and over Whoopi Goldberg and these characters. I still remember Fontaine. Mm. This woman is so ridiculously talented. It's It's easy to forget or not know, depending right. on when you were born. You're just like, oh, the lady from The right. View? And you're like, that is right. completely Hosting missing Oscars. the point. I mean, just, you know, like <laughs> when we say just a trailblazer, an EGOT winner, I mean, Whoopi, yeah. I think 
most people of a certain age just see her as one of the ladies at the table on you know squawking on the view and that is and she built the table you know, yeah exactly like, it's she holds really up the important that okay. folks dig into the archives check out some whoopee uh comedy okay so we're gonna take a quick commercial break i'm gonna be thinking about bo burnham and i think i'm gonna revisit some whoopee Goldberg after we finish yeah. the show all right we'll be back with baritone day thurston my good friend and host of america outdoors on pbs we'll be right back Okay, we are back. Baratune Day. Are you ready for question number four in the Blackest Question? Let's go. Okay. This public library has a massive and impressive online catalog of Black history. They also house historical maps, newspapers, census records, and documents known as the Slavery Pamphlet Collection. What's the name of this library? And here's a hint. It's located in the northeast part of the country. Hmm. I'm, this is going to be a wild guess, but I like to show my work and my process, which I didn't do on that first question. Um, Northeast pamphlets, a lot of freedom stuff. A public library? Did you say it was public? Okay. Then I'm going to hazard a guess that it's the Philadelphia Free Library. No, okay. it is the Brooklyn Public Library. No! And we'll no! get to read. And our oh listeners my God, do know why Baratune no. Day is well, I'm having. I'm literally wearing the t-shirt right now for the <laughs> yes. Brooklyn Public Library. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, so for, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, not only is Baratunde wearing the t-shirt, he also serves on the board of said Brooklyn Public Library. I used to, apparently. I used to serve on the board as of this moment because I think I just got right. booted off or <laughs> so, failing. That's a ridiculous. How did I, man, when you started, no, just, I gotta, I gotta like get out ahead. When you started and you talked about just free access to resources, my first thought was like, oh, BPL. Of course. And just the way they've opened up stuff like Books Unbanned, which mm -hmm. is the shirt I'm wearing right now for those states that are banning and burning books again, mm -hmm. Brooklyn Public Library is providing virtual access. So I'm like, oh, Brooklyn Public Library. But then I was like, oh, no, that's just like, I'm not gonna rep my library. And so I overthought it. Classic Harvard alumni move. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, the freedom is the free free library. Maybe they have a free program with the yeah. slavery papers. Well, Man. The, the Brooklyn well, Public Library. Look at that. Okay. You can try and scrape this episode, This at least this question, you know, when you go to your next board meeting. But Brooklyn Public Library is one of the largest public libraries in the country. is in the top 10 most of the most visited public libraries. It was established in 1852 as the Brooklyn Anthenaeum and Reading Room, and was a private subscription library for men only. It took nearly 30 years for it to be to be changed into a public library in 1878, and today it houses more than a million items, including many on African-American history. And as Baratunde Day mentioned, they're doing amazing work providing access to uh, library um, subscribers and also young people across the country who are getting books banned in their communities. Um, they have a great library card program for high school students which makes me so proud to be a member and a donor to the public library. And so you've written several, you know, books, but one of your books was the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black. Uh, tell us how you got into uh, your work with the Brooklyn Public Library and just, you know, put in a plug. I know you travel across the country. Um, you know, in New York, we're dealing with sort of defunding of our libraries and they serve as such crucial institutions for all different types of people, but especially our young people. So I got involved with the Brooklyn Public Library first as just a Brooklyn resident mm -hmm. and doing events at the library um, to connect that history point. 
you know this well, many uh, listening will, some will not. Frederick Douglass, essentially one of the founding you know, voices of this country, uh, issued a famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. I did a dramatic kind of reenactment, remixing and reading of that at the Brooklyn Public Library in the Dweck Center in the basement there. And it went off really well. I, I've hosted other authors and Q&As there. I've done at least four events at the Brooklyn Public Library. And at some point during that run, uh, they reached out and said like, hey, you live in Brooklyn. You love the library and books. We think you're good for words and whatnot. Do you want to you know, serve? And I was appointed as a trustee by then mayor. Um, oh, I so erased this dude's name from my memory. De Blasio. De Blasio. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was like, it's not Koch. It's not Dinkins. No, I it was, definitely it don't was think it's Giuliani. The last one. It was the last one. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to blame COVID on that. So, um, yeah. And then I got a, an inside view uh-huh. of the funding, of the services, of the program for people who are incarcerated and those who uh-huh. love them and want to connect with them and reading hours for kids and the number of languages and yeah. communities. Like the Brooklyn Public Library is one of the biggest employers in Brooklyn. Most residents live within walking distance of a branch. And, you know, I do this podcast, How to Citizen, where we take the word citizen as a verb and we just are in our fourth season right now. And one of the things that I love about all libraries is that they are places where democracy still happens as a practice. This is accessible to everybody, regardless of your legal citizenship status. There's a lot of citizening activity that goes on, passport photos, English as a second language, Mm -hmm. Wi-Fi. So man, yeah, it's just amazing public service, amazingly representative, amazingly inclusive. And uh, and it's one of the few institutions that's still truly, you know, of, by, and for the people. Yeah, I love a good library. And, you know, I'm so worried that, you know, in our funding struggles in so many cities, you know, the first things people think to cut are the public library systems. And so for all of our listeners out there, whatever city you live in, please support your yes. local public library. The libraries uh, catch people, yo. Know? Mm-hmm. It's just like folks who are unhoused have a place to go. And look yeah, for jobs. Air conditioning. Folks who are trying to I learn mean, a language have a place to go. Folks with kids have a place yeah. to go. When it's raining outside, you got a place to go. Yeah. And books are expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, the core process, like to be able to to be able to lend a book out and mm-hmm. then return it. Like that's just as a beautiful concept. I grew up in libraries in DC. Um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I echo your call. Wherever you are right now, there is a library near you that could use your help and that you could probably benefit from. I'm going gonna, gonna to double check what's going on in the L.A. libraries right now after this. Thank you. Oh, good. Excellent. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm with Baratunde Thurston, uh, host of America Outdoors on PBS and host of the podcast that you just mentioned, How to Citizen, and hopefully by the end of this podcast, still a board member of the Brooklyn Public Library. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. I'm with my dear friend, Baratunde Thurston. Uh, we're having a little too much photo of the Blackest Questions. Baratunde, are you ready for the fifth question? Probably Doing not. very well. Okay, come on, we got this, we got this. I support you. 25 years of friendship, I got you. Uh-huh. Okay. This hip-hop figure sold his company to Apple for more than $3 billion back mm. in 2014, making him one of the first hip-hop billionaires in history. Who is he and what was the product? I was clearly talking about uh, Vanilla Ice uh, and uh, the white AirPods. You know, that was, that was, <laughs> nah, this is Dre. 
Um, unless there's another hip hop billionaire acquired by Apple and uh, Beats by Dre, Jimmy Iovine, the whole thing. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. Apple paid $2.6 billion in cash and gave Dr. Dre another $400 million in company stock. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, was interested in Beats, not so much for the actual headphones, but rather Beats Music, which was a streaming platform that had been launched along with the headphones. After acquiring Beats, Apple discontinued the streaming service, but used the technology and rebranded it, launching what we now know as Apple Music. So basically, we have Dr. Dre to thank and his team for how we now get our music today. So, Bertrand, are you a tech guy? Very, very much. In fact, I just... I've been writing a lot of pieces about AI and whatnot over in Puck. Uh, mm. and I paid for college by being a tech guy, literally like supporting people with their computers, installing things, fixing them when they're broken. Uh, yes, I'm a tech guy. So tell us, A, a little bit more about Puck, and B, can you tell me uh, if I should be nervous about chat GPT as a professor? <laughs> and is AI going to take over and these like robotic dogs, are they going to just be running our cities in the next 10 years? What's going on? All right. So uh, Puck is a uh, a media company that is founded okay. by John Kelly and a bunch of folks who left their full-time journalism jobs to, you can kind of think of it as like a hybrid between a traditional newspaper and a Substack. Okay. Where, you know, Substack, you're kind of on your own. And doing everything for yourself in a newspaper, you have all this staff and overhead, but things also move very slowly. And as a contributor, as a writer, you don't necessarily own the thing. So, so in Puck, you know, we in the in the founding partner writing crew have a stake. We're part owners of the business, and Puck covers power in the U.S., Wall okay. Street, uh, Washington, Hollywood, and Silicon Valley. We just added fashion uh, with a writer on fashion just uh, very recently. And I'm not a reporter. I don't have snorses. I'm not a reporter. I don't have sources. I don't like snitch people out of their board meetings. I write, you know, opinion pieces <laughs> related to race, technology, democracy, uh, and sometimes climate. And so it's a good place for me to get some runway uh, and, and think out loud, not in social media snippets. So oh, AI has been a big topic of um, debates and excitement and worry. <laughs> for me over these past few months as these generative AI large language models like chat GPT are in public now as a professor you should be concerned you should be aware uh, I don't know how you test for that I feel like you know I was just speaking to a friend who's got kids in school in high school and the teachers are switching to oral exams because you are a hundred percent know like what is emitting from that child <laughs> is actually coming from them in the moment as yeah. opposed to a copy and paste job. Well, from, I still uh, have in-class written exams. I still use blue books. I'm that professor. No. Oh, yeah. I love a you, good blue book. You have instituted a time machine. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, they're like, my handwriting's terrible. It's like, well, it's not going to yeah. get better if you don't practice. Let's get it oh, together. Well, and if I can't read it, it's oh, wrong. You Welcome to the blue book. I love it, though. I love it. <laughs> Listen, it's going to be, we have always, I mean, through literally the history of our species, we've employed tools of various kind and technological innovation to help us get things done. And, and so these autocomplete language models and visual, they make music, they make visual imagery as well. They are part of a tradition uh, of us leaning on other capabilities to enhance our lives. Wow. The category of this one, the speed, the scale is a next level thing. Like your word documents will write themselves. Your right. PowerPoints will create themselves at least a first draft. And then so we become something different in terms of how we get things done. 
and it shifts the creativity and skills test to like, do you know how to ask the right question? Mm-hmm. Do you know how to prompt this machine? So right. we move it from software engineers to prompt engineers. And that's a mini edge sword. You know, the opportunities for misinformation, bias, what is not included in these training sets that have these models determine what is good or real or not is a huge cultural question. But it's, you know, one we're going to have to keep wrestling with. And I think there's a lot of creative possibilities for black people, for folks seeking freedom and liberation, for folks who've been behind to kind of help catch up if we structure this the right way. Otherwise, it'll just concentrate wealth and resources among those who already have it, uh, like many other innovations. Yeah, that's the piece that I think I'm a little worried about. But it it does make me feel better knowing that you're in the space. And shout out to our good friend, Ron Williams, who's also in the tech space. You know, just Ron and I have a lot of conversations about this stuff. And when when we and I use we in so many different collective senses, but this is the blackest question, right? (laughs) Yeah. So when we are able to catalog our own knowledge, you know, when we are able to query our own selves and experiences with a tool like this, that's generative <laughs> and regenerative. I'm, I'm interested in regenerative AI, you know, for our souls, yeah. for our relationship with the planet, for our climate, not just, you know, generative for the sake of extracting more resources and leaving waste behind that someone else is going to have to clean up uh, oh. or we're running out of finite resources, which I don't want that. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and play Black Lightning, which I can't wait. Are we going to come back or are we going to come black? <laughs> we're going to come black. After this commercial break. Be right black. Okay, we're back with my good friend, Baratunde. We've been playing the blackest question. Um, Baratunde, are you ready for the Black Lightning round? You know, I used to read Black Lightning comic book as a kid, so I'm going to say yes. You're completely ready. So there are no right or wrong answers here. This is just for you to tell me the first thing that pops to your mind, okay? Dangerous game. Dangerous game. Right. (laughs) This is PG and it's for the children. Here we go. (laughs) Now, are you playing Uno or Monopoly? Uno. What's your favorite city and why? D.C. Chocolate City. Chocolate City. It's the, you know, the nation's capital and where I grew up. Okay. What's the best piece of chicken? The, the chicken wing. The flat or the drum? The flat. Mm. My sister. Because you got to work for it. <laughs> and it's crispier. Listen, my sister used to always give me all the drums and she would take all the flats. And so I, I like flats, I think. But I'm yeah. just sort of like, every time I eat one, I feel like it's like a delicacy. <laughs> like, I'm stealing my sister's <laughs> piece of chicken. Okay. What's your favorite thing to do in nature? Oh, float. Like Janelle Monet. Just float. Mm. Okay. I'm going to yeah, say Yeah, like birdie. to be in water in okay. nature. Doesn't Love much it. matter what kind, river, just... lake, sea. But to be able to float, <laughs> salt helps. So, you know. If I'm picking a body, the Mediterranean okay. holds me best. My dense, dense black bones. <laughs> uh, I love to float in nature. Okay, and if we're in the U.S., let's all head to Utah and go to the, the salt pans. Um, are you a dog person or a cat person? Oh, I'm both. Okay. You can't force me to choose between my kids. I, I grew up with both of them, and somehow I'm one of those people that connects with both. My wife doesn't trust cats. Oh. Uh, she thinks they're kind of evil. Oh, I love them. They don't like her. Well, but I'm... I love cats and cats love me, but I also love, yeah, I just, I'm a cat and a dog you, person. You should be both. I think, I think that there's yeah. space and there's beauty for both. Okay, last one. We know you're a big advocate of getting people involved in local politics. Are you going to vote early or are you going to cast your, your ballot on voting day? 
Ooh, <laughs> here's what's likely to happen. I'm going to pre-fill out my ballot and think I'm going to drop it in the mailbox early, but I'm going to run out of time or misjudge my calendar and end up racing it over to the library <laughs> to put it in the slot. Oh, very I like the sticker. I like to get the sticker. Oh, person. listen. I mean, the stickers, the stickers, everything, right? I mean, I yeah, think that I'm still five years old. The, I just want a sticker telling me I'm good. Ever. <laughs> uh, Baratunde, I want to thank you so much for joining us on The Blackest Questions. I want to wish you the best of luck with Puck, with your podcast, with your season two of America Outdoors. Uh, your podcast, How to Citizen. I just want to make sure I plug that so listeners thank can check you. it out. Um, please promise us you'll come back and talk to us and play more games with us on The Blackest oh, Questions. I absolutely promise it. And to keep things blackish um, and blackest, what we have in this season, we have Adrian Marie Brown to kick off season four on this on this podcast. We have Ruha Benjamin, who I always say, Ruha, got you all right. in check. No one's ever said that before. I'm totally original. First black person ever to comment in such a fashion. Uh, just, I'm really proud of the voices that we have, but those are some of the blackest voices in our season. So. Wishing you the best of luck. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening to The Blackest Questions. This show is produced by Sasha Armstrong and Jeffrey Trudeau. And Regina Griffin is our director of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can find more from the Griot Black Podcast Network on the Griot app, website, and YouTube. Thanks so much for listening to The Blackest Question. Coming this February, the Griot Black Podcast Network presents Dear Culture, Truish Black Stories. When you think of sheer artistry, sheer creativity, um, the ability for someone to bring Black people together in the most fundamental ways, it's you know, I would say, of my four, Randy Watson's my number one. When the news about Ricky first broke, what I heard about it is the thing you hear about, you know, every time somebody black dies, that it was gang related. That means the police don't know what happened. So they just said, probably the gangs, probably, you know, the other black dudes. When I think of Akilah, you know, um, I think about, I just think about how impressionable white people can be. I think about how you know, if you watch that movie again, you know, if you should have lost like three times. Where were you when you heard the story about them suckers getting served by Wade's dance crew? You know, it's crazy that you mentioned this. So as a New Yorker, right, everyone knows where they were on 9-11, right? You know, a couple years later, right, 2003, everyone hears about this crazy moment in a boxing ring because that's where dancers do get out, right? In boxing rings. If you could say something to Ricky right now, what would you say to him? Ricky, you shouldn't have never got that girl pregnant. You knew I had a crush on you. You should have got with me instead. Moments in Black culture examined like never before. Join us each week as we dive into the Black moments that changed us, that changed the world. Make sure to subscribe to Dear Culture so you never miss an episode.